If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Job chapter 1. Um, Joanna is in one of my classes at Biola, and I asked her at the end of class on Thursday, I, I said, um, here's a couple of the sermons I'm thinking about <clears throat> for Sunday. What do you recommend? And um, she recommended the one on the book of Job, so hopefully you made a good choice. We'll see. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it seems like, so this is in one of these, you know, a one-off kind of Sunday um, this is something maybe that, that you can do that would be harder to do in a, in a regular series. Um, but we're obviously, we're not going to read the whole thing, and, and we're not going to treat every element of the book of Job in all the depth that we can. But I think its main lesson is something that we can survey, and we can drill down into, and we can take something away from uh, in the time that we have together this morning. It is, uh, as you uh, no doubt are familiar a very sobering book, and um, it's not—it's not light and easy, uh, but it is important, and it is good because of the way it portrays a message of the trustworthiness of God's character, even in the midst of hardship. And no doubt, um, even just listening to David's prayer a moment ago, uh, there are people here experiencing their own moments of, of hardship, and, and and then obviously as a congregation. You have your own kind of hardship as you're, as you're waiting on the pastoral search um, to bring to your congregation uh, the pastor that God has appointed for you. So uh, that's where we're, where we're going. Um, and this is definitely a sermon that is easier to give than it is to live. Uh, but our main goal in, in spending time in the book of Job together would, would be to encourage one another's faith in a way that, uh, that our lives reflect its message, right, that we're able to live it. So at the outset, I can say this, uh, the book of Job teaches us that God is in charge of everything, even our pain, even our hardship, and there is definitely some mystery uh, in that, but it's also very, very good news. Uh, the pain that God allows into our lives is its sort of like the way that a skilled surgeon wields a scalpel, right? It cuts, uh, and it may hurt, but its design is in the hands of God for his people, uh, for that surgery to cure and to, and to heal. So uh, I'd love to, to just uh, open with prayer, and, and then we'll dive in here, kind of get in the overview and, and looking at some of the key themes in the book of Job. Heavenly Father, this is a most uh, sobering book, and yet it is one uh, that we all need. Uh, at various times in our life, we all need it, and perhaps there. Uh, either as a congregation or as individuals, there are people who are uniquely in need of this message this morning. So strengthen us to receive in faith uh, what your word has to say. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you guys need me to do something with my mic? Am I, am I messing up? It could entirely be operator error here. So apologies if it is. Okay. Um, so first we want to give uh, a little bit of uh, overview here. So I'm going to in, in a paragraph, kind of walk through the entire book of Job, and then we'll start drilling down in a little more detail. Uh, so the first two chapters introduce this guy named Job. Um, by the end of those two chapters, Satan has twice appeared before God, uh, asking and receiving permission to afflict Job. Uh, and Job's affliction is described in some significant detail. At the end of chapter 2, Job has three friends who show up, and they mourn silently with him for seven days. Uh, then in chapter 3, after the seven days of mourning have passed, 
Job laments the fact that he was ever born. And then following that, from chapters 4 to 31, so which is definitely the, the biggest chunk of the book, there's basically three cycles of dialogue or, or three cycles of speeches between Job and his friends. And this is the part of the book of Job where it's really easy to get lost because, as I said, it's the longest section, and his friends basically keep repeating, these, repeating themselves. So the first cycle... Um, Uh, The first friend speaks, Job replies. The next friend speaks, Job replies. The third friend speaks, Job replies. That's cycle one. Cycle two does the same thing. Cycle three does basically the same thing, except in the third cycle, the last friend, the speeches get shorter and shorter. The last friend has nothing to say, and it's kind of like they've run out of steam. Um, The gist of his friend's counsel, these guys... uh, The basic counsel that they give to Job over and over and over again is that there must be some secret sin you are hiding, and that's the reason that God has brought this much judgment upon you. So what you must do, Job, is to repent. And Job's consistent reply to his three friends is to protest his his innocence, right? And and, and therefore, in some respects, the injustice of, of the, the circumstances he's facing. He, is, he does not claim to be sinless, um, but he does claim to be living for the Lord, and God himself bears that out at the end of the, at the, end of the book. So those cycles of speeches uh, conclude. Uh, then there's a guy named Elihu who shows up in chapter 32. For five chapters, he goes on uh, a lengthy speech, and then the final chapters in the book, 38 to 42, are, is the climactic confrontation between God and Job. God has some things to say to Job's friends, has some things to say to Job. That's the, that's the really big picture, okay? So we're going to dip in initially to chapters 1 and 2, because what we're going to see is that throughout the course of Job, uh, he basically faces three tests. The first two appear in the first two chapters, and the third one is, is elongated over the remainder of the book. So let's step, dip into the first couple of chapters kind of sets the stage for everything else that is uh, going on. And, and by the way, um, there, there's some information given in the first couple of chapters that we as the reader uh, see and understand. So like this dialogue between God and Satan uh, and God granting permission for the affliction of Job, we get to see that. Job did not. We get, we get a glimpse behind the curtain, so to speak, that Job never did. And, and, and I think that's intentional, right? I think that's purposeful. Because Job is reminding us in our hardships and and in our suffering that there are all kinds of things that we don't see that God does and should should be trusted for. All right, so the first five verses, I'm just going to kind of point you to a couple of uh, observations here and summarize. You see right off the bat in verse 1 that Job is, uh, is is a righteous man. We learn of his integrity, right? He is, we're told, he's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He turns away from evil. And so, so right off the bat, we're, we're, we're sort of getting a preliminary indicator that what Job's friends are going to say to him later on isn't true. What they're going to say to him later on is inaccurate. Um, in verses 2 and 3, you see that Job is a man of great wealth and prosperity, right? The, 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 the possessions and the blessings that he had were astonishing uh, in the context of his time. 
And then in verses 4 and 5, we see that he devotedly intercedes uh, for the sake of his family and for the sake of his children. So he's, he's righteous himself before the Lord. He's interceding on behalf of his kids. Then there's kind of like a scene change, and we come down to verse 6. And this is where we see the first interaction between Satan and God. So I'm going to pick this up in verse 6, read down to verse 12, and uh, make a couple of observations, okay? Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord, all, uh, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and says, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so notice a couple of things here. First, in verse 8, God again endorses the blamelessness of Job. Again, that's, that, that, that's not faultlessness, uh, utter sinlessness, but, but righteousness. God endorses that, which again, it's going to indicate that the friends are mistaken. We also see in verse 8 that it's God who suggests Job to Satan and not the other way around. I mean, Satan doesn't say specifically, can I afflict Job? God said, now, that probably smacks our ears as a pretty odd thing, right? <clears throat> but it's really significant. What God is up to in Job's life is really very difficult, but it is also very good. It is counterintuitive, right? At first glance, uh, it's, it's, it's like the wisdom of the cross where victory is gained through what it would appear to be defeat, where life is won through the sacrifice unto death. So we need to be reminded that, 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 that even in all that's going on here, the, these are the actions of, of one who loves Job, right? On the part of God, one who loves Job and wants Job not just to have a bunch of nice stuff, but the very best thing that he can have. So Satan's hypothesis, Satan's hypothesis that he, that he suggests to God is that Job really only fears you because of his prosperity. So you, you blessed him, you made him uh, financially wealthy, he's got a great family. He loves you for the prosperity, but if you take your hand of blessing away from him, Job will fall away. Jo uh, Satan basically, right, says to God, Job loves you for the goodies and not for you. You are not enough for Job. At that point, God both permits and places boundaries on what Satan can do to Job. You may touch his possessions. You may not touch him. So it's clear that God is in charge, right? Satan can go no further uh, than God permits. And in the next uh, paragraph, verses 13 down to, to 19, I'm just going to summarize here, there are four devastating waves of loss. Okay, so, so Satan goes out and, and, and then brings this torment, and in four successive waves of destruction, he loses oxen, sheep, camels, servants, 
and children. House collapses on, on his children. And then we get this remarkable response from Job. Uh, it's, it's on the cover of your bulletin down in verses uh, 20 to the end of chapter 1. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and... What, what word would you expect to be there? Probably a lot of other words rather than the one that is, right? He fell on the ground and worshipped. <clears throat> And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Simultaneously from Job, there is both anguish and trust, right? He is not a stoic. His loss and his pain are genuine. He is grieving profoundly, and at the same time, proving Satan's hypothesis wrong. Job apparently did not only love God on account of his prosperity. He loved God for God, so at one and the same time, he grieved and worshipped. He believed that God was good when God gave him good things that he did not deserve. And he believed that God was good when for purposes he could not yet begin to understand, God also took those things away. And and Job uh, acknowledges God's sovereignty in this too, right? Even though Job didn't have the glimpse of the conversation between the Lord and Satan, he, he, he recognized God's sovereignty in everything that came to him. It is true that Satan is the one who did the afflicting, but God is in charge of Satan. And so when Job says in verse 21, the Lord give, the Lord takes away, verse 22, that's a comment from the author of the book of Job that says in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Right, so that's that's the 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 um, sort of the macro perspective from the author of the book of Job, saying he didn't he didn't charge God with wrongdoing. Satan is not so easily deterred. Chapter two, uh, verses one through six, um, he appears before the Lord again this, to renew his challenge. In verse three, God points out that Satan was wrong. He says, "I basically I permitted you to afflict him, and Job did not fall away." Satan argues, this is verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, Satan argues that what will really undo Job is the loss of his health. In other words, you didn't let me go far enough last time. You didn't let me afflict his health. You let me afflict his health, he will curse you to your face. Verse 6, God once again permits and places boundaries on what Satan can do. This time you may afflict his health, but you may not take his life. And the next scene... which is uh, observable in verses 7 and 8. Job is sitting on an ash heap, covered in sores, using broken pieces of pottery to scrape the ooze out of his overflowing wounds. It is not a pretty picture, right? It's not a comfortable sight. Then we get Job's response, right? In verse 9, as you can see there, Uh, Job's wife counsels Job to renounce God. She basically says, enough is enough. Death would be preferable to this. Just curse him and die. Clearly, she's feeling the burden of loss too. and, And it's understandable that she would. But look at what Job does in verse 10. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. 
Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. So, so Job's wife says, curse God and die. Job continues to commit himself to God, proving a second time the wrongness of Satan's hypothesis about Job. But, but let's, let's not miss this point either. What, I think what Job says to his wife in verse 10 is actually quite gentle, considering her grief. Do you notice? So, so he, in other words, in his own grief, he's ministering to his wife. He does not say, you are one of the foolish women. He says, you're talking like one, which means that's not who you are. Come back. Not just come back to me, come back to the Lord. I know that's not who you are, sweetie. Right? And so he ministers to his wife in the midst of his own grief. I don't think that's harsh. I think that's, that's ministry. And so, by the end of chapter 2, Job has now passed his first two tests. But there is one more to come. Uh, in verses 11 through uh, 13, we, we, we encounter Job's three friends. As I mentioned, for the first time, they show up, as I said, and for seven days, they don't say a thing. They just they sit and mourn silently with Job. And this is where we get to the third, uh, the longest, probably the most difficult of the tests. Uh, test number one was in chapter one when he had these four devastating losses. Test number two is his health in chapter two. Test number three is the test of long-term perseverance, which is made more bitter because of the unrelenting accusation of his friends once they finally begin to talk, okay? Up and down, long and hard. <clears throat> And I think it's, it's fair to say Job does not ace this test. But it's also fair to say that he doesn't fail it. This is long-term difficult grief. And he has ups and downs like many of us <clears throat> would. In the end, we'll see that God vindicates Job. By the, book, by the time the book's over, Satan's not around. Not to be heard from anymore. <clears throat> so let's dip into uh, test number, uh, number three. Job laments in chapter three the day that he was ever born. Uh, and then his friends start to bombard him in chapters 4 and following with the claim that you suffer because you sinned. So repent. That appears to be the only category that they have for why God would permit suffering, right? As a direct consequence for some kind of sin. They don't have a category by which God might permit suffering of righteous persons for other reasons. So let me... Um, we're not going to we're not not going to read all of their speeches, uh, not by a long shot. But let me give you as a point of reference an example of of a speech from each one, and and then I'll just I'll reference two of them, and then I'll read the third one just so you get a taste. Okay, so there's this guy named Bildad, in in chapter eight verses one through six. We're not going to read that, but if you're a note taker, you might want to check it out later. So Bildad in chapter eight verses one through six basically tells Job. Your kids must have deserved it. So remember, the house collapses on the on, and, and 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 Bildad says they they must have deserved it. There's this guy named Zophar <clears throat> in chapter 11, verses four through six. Again, we are not going to read that one either. But in chapter 11, verses four through six, Zophar basically says to Job, "You deserve worse than you got." And then uh, the third friend is named Eliphaz. Turn over to chapter 22. I do want to read you a little bit of, of his speech, just, as a, just to kind of get a taste of what they're saying to him. 
This is Eliphaz chapter 22. I'm going to pick it up in verse 5. So here's what Eliphaz says to Job. Is not your evil abundant? There's no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you or darkness so that you cannot see and a flood of water covers you. Those are really hard words, especially recognizing that they're false, right? I mean, Eliphaz, he's he's grasping at straws at this point. It must be because you've neglected widows and orphans, he says. You must be a greatly wicked person to be suffering so profoundly. Now, to be sure... Job's friends, they meant well, right? They, they, they didn't always counsel well, but they meant well. And so I do want to consider a few positive things uh, from their counsel before we look at where they kind of went astray. First, um, they did sit in silence with Job for seven days. They don't start wailing away on him uh, 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 immediately. They start well with sympathy and with compassion. And there's a recognition in that, isn't there, that in a person's grief... If you're, if you're comforting a person in their grief, there is a time for talking, but there's also a time for tears. There's also a time to weep with those who weep. <clears throat> and they acknowledge that. And they respect that initially. Secondly, I do think while their speeches do increase in harshness as the time goes by. But I do think, at least in the beginning, their speeches are motivated by love for Job. Right? They sincerely believe that he's being judged for some significant sin and that if he will only repent, his suffering will diminish. They don't want to see him continuing to suffer. So they exhort him time and time and time again to repent. And strictly speaking, that's not bad advice, right? Where sin is the problem, repentance is the antidote. So it's not, it's not like that's an untrue uh, statement or an untrue formula the, the there is a um galatians 6 tells us that you reap what you sow there's a reap so reaping sowing principle in scripture it's articulated in proverbs galatians 6 other places it's a valid biblical principle if a person is making bad choices sinful choices and those choices are leading him or her to experience the negative consequences of those choices then by all means we should heed the, uh, the reap sow principle and repent, but in Job's case, that's not the issue, right? We've already seen, we've, we've been forewarned, so to speak, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, that's not the case. So, so while they had some good intentions, they are misapplying the reaping-sowing principle. They assume that there can only be one purpose for suffering, that it must be retribution for sin and wickedness, and that secondly, apparently, that retribution always comes rather quickly, right? So rather immediate. Again, they don't recognize that God might be doing other things and permitting the godly to suffer. And that is one of the chief, it's right, it's one of the chief errors that the book of Job is given to correct. So Job, as he responds to his friend, uh, friends, of course, he acknowledges that he is a sinner, uh, we understand that Job does not see all that God sees, but he continually responds, I'm not hiding secret sin. 
I'm not hiding secret, unconfessed sin. And so Job, every time one of the friends speaks, Job responds to, to the friend, right? Basically making that kind of claim. And you can see in this longer period of the book, Job has these rising and falling waves of, uh, of grief and trust and difficulty and, 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 and relying on the Lord. And I'll just mention a couple of them to you. So one example of his grief uh, we're not going to read it, but again, if you're a note taker, chapter 9, verses 14 uh, to 18 is a good example of his grief, even to the point of questioning God, okay? So he, he has that, he has some of those lows. On the other hand, if you look with me in chapter 19, beginning in verse 25, this is one of Job's very famous expressions, even in the midst of his long-term perseverance of trust in the Lord, Right? We're probably familiar with this passage. Uh, chapter 19, I'm going to read verses 25 to 27. This is what Job says. And it's a pretty powerful foreshadow. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. He, he's, he, he's, he's talking about a hope in, in, in resurrection life here. Right? He's trusting that things will be righted. It is not, it's certainly not an absence of grief. But what Job models in this particular passage, pretty helpfully, is what it looks like to grieve towards God. Grieving towards God rather than away from God. Grieving with God rather than opposite God. Okay, uh, so then uh, I told you in chapters 32 to 37, this other guy named Elihu shows up. Goes on for five chapters. He adds a nuance or two, but he basically sounds like the three friends who came before. Uh, uh, thesis one, God is just. Thesis two, Job is suffering. Conclusion, therefore ju Job is being judged for sin. God is just, Job is suffering, must be judgment for sin. So uh, at the end of Elihu's speech, all the way down, so down in chapter 37, doesn't look like we're very far along, right? We're not much further along than we are with the, the speeches from the other three friends. So for the reader of the book of Job, it kind of makes you wonder, why is so much time? So much ink devoted to so such little headway. Why spend why so much time and so little headway? And I think, I think the re, I think the reason for it is that God wants to prepare Job himself, but also the reader of the book of Job, for the full recognition that human wisdom in itself is not sufficient to account for everything that's going on in the deep purposes of God. I think it basically feels like we spin our wheels for the better part of 37 chapters trying to wrap our arms around everything that's going on only to be brought to the recognition, oh, our, our wisdom isn't sufficient to grasp all that God is doing here. So then in chapters 38 to 42, uh, God has his, his dialogue with Job. That's where things begin to climax. Chapter 38, God shows up in the whirlwind. Uh, let me just highlight a few of the things that God says. If you'll flip with me to Job chapter 42, read a couple of verses uh, there. Job chapter 42, uh, beginning in verse 7. <clears throat> 
After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, so we'll get back to what he says to Job in a second, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger, so he's ta- now God's talking to the three friends, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Timonite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So here, God is vindicating Job's claim that he was not being punished for some secret sin. And in fact, he requires the three, the three friends to seek Job's intercession on their behalf, which, which of course he does. But the fact that Job was right in his debate with his three friends concerning secret sin does not mean he was right in everything he spoke about God. And his suffering at times, as we at least referenced earlier, Job has questioned the wisdom and justice of God and allowing him to suffer as he has. So God spends most of his time in this speech with Job making one very powerful point. You're not God. You're not God. And so, before you find fault with me, Job, he wants him to be very clear about just how much he doesn't see. God says, so look at chapter 38 now. We'll pick it up here in verse 2. God says, and there's there's some sarcasm employed in this, right? He says, Job, if you know best, let me ask you some questions and see if you can answer them. And, 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 and it's not done to belittle Job, but what, it, what, what is happening here is God is intending to, to highlight the gulf that exists between divine wisdom and human wisdom. We've already seen, by getting to chapter 37, human wisdom is not enough to get us all the way home. And so, and so God is, 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 is distinguishing the gulf that exists between divine and human wisdom. So just a couple of examples here. Uh, verses 30, or ch- excuse me, chapter 38, God speaking out of the whirlwind to Job, verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. In other words, if you know so much, here's some questions. See if you can answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And it goes on and on and on from there. That's just a, just a sample. You can look at more of that later if you, if you like. Uh, but then, all right, as a result of this, this uh, confrontation, Job in chapter 42, he repents of presuming to know better than God. You see that especially in uh, chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Job says, for example, there in verse 3, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful, wonderful for me which I did not know. And, and, and the book concludes, right? Uh, this is chapter 42, verses 10 through the end of the book, with God restoring Job's fortunes, 
uh, blessing him with more family. He basically doubles his former blessings. But here's the interesting thing. At no point in the book of Job does God tell Job or us, the readers, precisely why he was allowed to suffer. He only tells him that it was not retribution for some secret sin. Here's the more amazing thing. By the time you get to the end of the book, Job doesn't care that God does not go into more detail. He doesn't care anymore. He firmly believes now that in the wisdom of God, God has a reason, and that because of God's character, that reason is good. Ultimately and finally, God is enough for Job. The third test was the toughest of them all, and it also has been passed. So what I want to do with the the time we have remaining is to reflect with you on five key lessons that I think we can take away from the book of Job. Okay, Five main lessons that we can take away from what's going on in, uh, in this story. The first, and this is just a quick, quickly to reiterate something we've already said. Um, apparently, God can and does have more uh, than just one purpose in allowing suffering in the lives of his children. Okay, so we've ha- we got to be very careful what we deduce from somebody else's suffering or even from our own, right? It is true that there can be consequences for sin, but that doesn't necessarily mean that someone else's suffering is a sure indicator that they are hiding secret sin. It may be, it may be the case that someone's suffering, however mysterious this may be, is nevertheless a sign of greatness in God's eyes. Remember the observation we made all the way back at the beginning in chapter 1 where God was the one who suggested Job to Satan? Job 1.8, here, here, here's how that, that, that was stated. Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. In other words, God puts Job forward for this test not because he's weak and wicked, but because he was strong in faith and righteous in his integrity before the Lord. And God wasn't finished with him. He had more he wanted uh, Job to experience by way of his growth and maturation as a follower of the Lord. That's point number one. Here's here's, uh, lesson number two. God is sovereign over all things, including evil things, but God is not the author or doer of evil. Both of those Right, the, the two points that make up that statement are pretty important. He's sovereign over all things, including evil things, but he is not himself the author or doer of evil. That's one of the key points of chapters 1 and 2. Right? God is clearly in charge. God permits Satan to bring affliction. Satan is not God's equal. He doesn't demand or insist or assert his rights before God. God sets very specific limits, and yet Satan is the one who brings the affliction to Job. Why is this important? It's tremendously important because it reminds us that even while God is in charge of all things, God himself is only good and not evil. So so, to some extent, there's mystery in God's sovereignty over evil things when God himself is entirely good. But 
But uh, it, it reminds me of the passage in 1 John uh, 1.5, right, where you get this description of God. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, meaning no moral darkness at all. And so this theme, right, of God's sovereignty and his goodness put together is a reminder to us that we can trust God for at least two reasons in the face of our own suffering and hardship. One, we can trust that he's in charge, right? The suffering that Job endured was not an indicator that God had lost control. And your suffering and your hardship is not an indicator that God has lost control. Secondly, we can also trust God's purposes in our suffering because they are governed by his good and holy character, which means even if I don't understand it, which may, you know, in plenty of instances be the case, that I don't understand it. But it means that those circumstances are allowed ultimately for our good. So just like Job's suffering was not an indicator that God is not in control, it was also not an indicator that God doesn't care. And neither is yours. We may not know the specifics of why in any given situation, but God's character is always trustworthy. You remember the, um, the, uh, the statement that's made over and over again about Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia? He's not safe, but he's good. He's not safe, but he's good. Lesson number three. <clears throat> Humans do not see the whole picture of what's taking place in our suffering and hardship. One commentator put it like this. He said, we're tempted to conclude that if suffering seems pointless to us, that it must be pointless. But as we saw at the end of the book of Job, God makes it clear how little Job really sees and by implication ourselves. Um, maybe you remember the story of the man born blind in John chapter 9. We're not going to look at that in detail, but... Um, at that point in time, the disciples kind of react like Job's friends. And they said, well, who sinned? This man or his, why was this guy born blind? Was it, is it his sin or his parents' sin? And that's sort of their conclusion. It's got to be attributable to somebody's sin. What does Jesus say? Jesus says in response, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, this guy's physical blindness had been ordained for however many years uh, his life had, had been lived up to that point so that one day Jesus would come along, heal him, and leave a testimony about the glory of Jesus to everyone watching. Of course, by the end of the story, the man receives not only physical sight, but also his spiritual sight as well. So friends, I, I think it's safe to say that there are some majestic things going on in the universe that are way bigger than our particular place in the universe, Right? We're called to live out the glory of God's story, first and foremost, right? Not, not even primarily our own. Uh, lesson number four. God and God alone is the very best blessing. God and God alone is the very best blessing, better than any of the goodies that he could give to us. We could put this in, in a couple of different ways. Here's one. If we have everything that the world has to offer, but we don't have God, then we have nothing of permanent value. 
Okay? This is how Jesus says, Jesus makes this point in Matthew 16. He says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Okay? If you have everything the world says you could possibly desire but not God, then you have nothing of permanent value. To put it differently, if all the good things in this life that we love and hold dear, if they're taken from us, but we still have God, that's enough. That's enough. That's what God wanted Job to know. That's what God wants you and I to know this morning, that he himself is the very best blessing that we can ever have. So we know, by the end of the book of Job, how Job fared. The question today is, what about you and me? Is God our true treasure? Do we love God primarily for what he gives us in himself, or do we love him for the stuff he gives? Will he be enough for you and for me when the day comes that some of that stuff is taken, or maybe, in your case, has already come? It's not easy, is it? I said at the outset, it's easier to give this sermon than to live this sermon. <clears throat> but I do want to venture this. I believe that on the, at least on the final day, if not sooner, that you and I will praise God. Praise God for anything he allows into our lives that has the effect of refining our hold on him as our greatest treasure. Do you believe that? James, the half-brother of Jesus, did. You remember his statement in James chapter 1? He said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy when you meet trials. Who talks like that? Well, James, by the end of the book of Job, Job did as well. And with God's help, we may also. That leads us to the fifth, final, and most important lesson of all from the book of Job. The suffering of Job was extreme. <clears throat> Probably more so than most of us will ever go through at one time. But Job's suffering is not the ultimate example of the satanic affliction of a righteous man. So think about these points and think about who they remind you of. Number one, a righteous man, in, this, right, in the book of Job, a righteous man suffers at the hand of Satan under the sovereignty of God. Number two, that man's own friends turn against him. Number three, he prays for those who mock him. Number four, that man is finally and publicly vindicated by God. Sound familiar? Can't help but read the story of Job and think of the gospel of Jesus, can we? The only difference is that the reality, Jesus, is always greater than the shadow, in this case, Job. Jesus' innocent suffering was greater than Job's. Job was righteous in the sense that he was not being punished for some specific secret sin, but he was not entirely sinless, as some of his own complaints against God express. Jesus, by contrast, was afflicted to the point of death when he had done absolutely no wrong. 
Job anticipates the victory of Jesus in his experience, but in an anticipatory way, right? He finds uh, hope to persevere because of that future fulfillment of what Job himself was foreshadowing. And so in Job 19, which we saw a little while ago, he has hope in a shadowy kind of way of some kind of future resurrection deliverance. Job's faith was looking forward to a promise yet to be fulfilled. Ours looks backward at one that has already taken place. So when we suffer, <clears throat> our ultimate reason for hope in the justice of God and the goodness of God is that in Jesus, the believer has already uh, won the guarantee of victory over death, Satan, and suffering. The resurrection of Jesus, right, which is not something we are yet waiting for but now has happened, testifies that however much the sorrows of this life hurt, they will not have the last word. Because Jesus was ultimately vindicated, every believer who belongs to him will be as well. And that's what God wants Job to know. That's what he wants us to know today in the believer's pain. He doesn't want us to pretend like it isn't real or not to grieve. But he does want us to throw ourselves on Jesus in full confidence that he is better than life. So uh, I'll, I will close in prayer here in just a second. But, but I did want to uh, just suggest that, that for some of you who maybe feel like you are hurting in particular ways, that at the conclusion of the service and the conclusion of the reflection time, it might be, might be useful for you to seek out one of your ministry leaders, um, one of your elders, David, Oscar, other ministry leaders. You guys know each other. I've uh, been partnering together for a long time. They would be delighted. I would be delighted. I'll be sitting right down here when this is done to pray with you in particular. If you have a specific burden, uh, some, some, some grief, some suffering, maybe that you have shared with others, maybe that you haven't, and you just need your faith uh, to be encouraged to persevere in the trust and the hope that God himself is the very best blessing. So, um, and, 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 and really, probably whoever's sitting beside you in your row would be delighted to do that. So if that's a need of yours, if you feel that burden, please feel free to share that with someone before you leave this morning. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, uh, this is, has been a very weighty word. The book of Job is not light and easy, and yet it is important. And so we thank you. Uh, we thank you that in uh, the case of Job, you've given us a role model for what it looks like to grieve, even if imperfectly, to grieve with hope. And we thank you that Job pointed us to the one who is greater even than Job, who suffered on account of absolutely no sin of his own and laid down his life and was resurrected from the grave, vindicated uh, underneath your sovereign and providential care. Lord, I pray that each of us in the ways that we would benefit from it would take this hope deep down into our souls this morning and into the coming week. Whatever people may be facing, uh, hardship they may be struggling with, but I pray that, that faith would be uh, rekindled uh, to trust you, to walk with you, to be confident not only in your sovereignty, but also in your goodness, even when life presents us with far more than we ourselves can presently see. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.